Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today we introduce the city and the church of Pergamum out of Revelation chapter 2. I hope that you're following along with us in our journey through the seven churches of Revelation. Today we are introducing the third church, Pergamum. We've already covered Ephesus and we've already covered Smyrna. Well, today we're going to learn a great deal of history about this important city and the church that was there. We're going to tackle some of the very difficult to interpret uh, scriptures. Christ says this is where Satan dwelled. Christ said this is where Satan's throne was. We're going to tackle these scriptures and try to give the best interpretation uh, that we can to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to his churches. So I hope you enjoy today's teaching. I hope that you'll also consider downloading our free mobile app, Awakened to grace. If you've yet to download our app, well, you can catch, you can, you can not only catch up with where we are, but you can stay current every single week with the sermons that we preach. So make sure you download that. Also consider subscribing to our, to our YouTube channel, Preaching Christ Church, or our podcast, Awaken to Grace with Chad Roberts. There are many platforms that the Lord has us on, and I hope you'll connect with us. Well, today I hope you enjoy this part one of the Church of Pergamum. I hope you enjoy not only all of the scripture teaching, but all of the history that is with this church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of he who holds the sharp, two-edged sword. Oh, I love these words, my friends. Let's understand their meaning. Now, in our study so far, we've understood what the angel of the church means, in my view, that is addressing the pastor. Now, remember, these are letters written by Christ through John the Apostle, to seven literal, physical congregations. But not only are they a literal, physical congregation in what was called Asia Minor, this province of the Roman Empire that is today called Turkey. It is modern-day Turkey. But these were not only were these seven individual, literal, physical churches, just like ours, but these are also, this is a word also for every single church of every single age. It is prophetic, just like the book of Revelation. It is prophetic in what it has to say to Christians of all time. That's why verse 17 is so relevant to us. Those who have an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches collectively. And we are included in that. But not only is it a word to the literal physical congregation, not only is it a word to all churches of all ages, I believe it is also a word to a church age, to a church period of time. Just like I believe the letter to Ephesus was written for the early church, for that apostolic age, for that time of the early apostles and the beginnings of the word of God, to then the church of Smyrna, I believe, was written to those Christians who lived under the fiercest persecution of the Roman Empire. 
That would have lasted through uh, the early 100s all the way up to the 300 ADs. Under the Roman Empire, Jesus said you'll have 10 days of persecution. And under the Roman Empire, there were literally 10 waves of persecution against the church. And we dove into all of that last week. We saw the Bishop Polycarp, how he was martyred in AD in 151 AD. Let's understand the city of Pergamum. Now, what I want you to understand first and foremost is that Pergamum was the center of Asia Minor for idolatry, for heathenism, and for paganism. When Jesus says that this is the city in which Satan dwelt, he's not exaggerating. When he says that this is the city where Satan's throne is, he is not exaggerating. Now remember, we've been in Ephesus. We have now traveled 35 miles north to Smyrna. Now from Smyrna, and remember we're making the big capital D. Now we're going to go 50 miles north of Smyrna, and then we're going to travel 15 miles inland. And this is where the ancient city of Pergamum was situated. It was 15 miles. Now remember, Ephesus was a harbor city and um, Smyrna was a harbor city along the Aegean Sea. But Pergamum is going to sit 15 miles inland. It was a beautiful city and they say that on a clear day, it was built upon the mountains and they say that on a clear day, you could see the Mediterranean Sea from Pergamum. Pergamum. It was 15 miles inland off of the Mediterranean Sea. But the problem, even though it was an influential city, even though it was a wealthy city, even though it was a beautiful city, the problem was that it was a wicked city, steeped in idolatry, paganism, and heathenism. Now, what they were famous for was their academia. They were famous for their books. They boasted a library that was second only to the library of Alexandria. Have you ever done some reading on the library of Alexandria? Some years ago, I had the opportunity to go and spend an entire day in the library of Alexandria, in the new, the modern library of Alexandria, off of the Mediterranean Sea in Egypt. And it was one of the most... Uh, thrilling adventures I've ever had to go there and be steeped in the history of what that day was. Pergamum boasted of over 200,000 scrolls in their library. Of course, they didn't have books then. They had scrolls. Pergamum is where we get the idea of parchment from or vellum or sheepskin. They were known for their academia. But again, it was a wicked, wicked city. I want you to notice what Jesus says to the city. He says, write the words of he who holds the two-edged sword. Now, what is this sharp two-edged sword? Do you remember in John chapter 1 that Jesus gives a description of himself to John? John saw him in all of his glory, which included his white hair, his eyes of flame of fire, his feet burnished bronze, his uh, right hand full of the seven stars. 
And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And there were seven descriptions of Christ. Now, what's interesting, in each of the churches, he's going to give a different description going back to chapter 1. Now, we saw last week, why, why was it the seven stars? Because he talked, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, he talked to the church of Ephesus about his power, his authority, the headship of the church. Why did he say last week to Smyrna, he said, the one, I'm the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the one who is dead but now alive. Because remember we said the motto, the slogan of the city of Smyrna was the city that was dead but is now alive. Well, in a similar way, he's going to have a very specific word to say to Pergamum. And do you know what he's going to say to Pergamum? I am he who holds the seven, or I'm sorry, the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why is this so significant, church? Do you realize that like the other cities, Pergamum was fiercely loyal to the Roman government? And in the Roman government world, in the Roman Empire, the sword represented all power. It represented military might. And as a matter of fact, it was the proconsul, the Roman proconsul, who lived in the city of Pergamum. The Roman proconsul was the official representative of the Roman government who handled all the Roman Empire affairs in the city of Pergamum. And guess what he was famous for? The sword with which he carried. And do you know what Jesus says to the Roman Empire? You think your sword's impressive? You think your sword is powerful? You think your sword represents all might? I am he who holds the sharp, double-edged sword. Glory to God. Amen. And this is a deeper context. For if you go to Hebrews chapter, 12, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, here's what the Bible says. The word of God is active. The word of God is alive. It is powerful. And it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Do you know why when he revealed himself to John, do you know why the sword came out of his mouth? Is because this is speaking of the written logos Rhema, word of God. These are the very words of Jesus Christ himself. And that's why the double-edged sword comes forth out of his mouth. See, the Bible is not the words of men. Do you understand that? Yes, the Holy Spirit used men. The Holy, it's been well said. The Holy Spirit used common men to write the Bible so that common men may read the Bible. But it is not the words of man. The scripture teaches that the word of God is God breathed. It is God inspired. It is spirit lived. It is the very logos and rhema words of God. And that's why this beautiful double-edged sword proceeds out of his mouth. Amen. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into it today, but if you want a deeper study of the sword of the Word of God, if you want to understand why it wasn't the blunt sword or why it wasn't the massive gladius sword, if you want to understand why it's a double-edged sword, it's actually in the Roman days. Oh, Chad, you can't get into all of it. 
I'll never get through it. It was a little 18-inch dagger that when they got into close combat, they wouldn't use their massive swords. They would use those daggers in warfare. And what? Go back to the series called The Armor of God, and I explain it all. And go back and restudy The Armor of God sermon series and listen to the sermon on the sword of the Spirit, and you'll understand why it's double-edged. We got to move on. I'll never get through if we get into all of that. But what is Jesus saying? This double-edged sword out of his mouth, friends, that is the written word of God. And he says it directly to the people of Pergamum who thought their sword was quite mighty and quite powerful. No, my friends, it is nothing compared to the sword of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to say some wonderful things to this church. Watch what he says in verse number 13. He's going to tell them, I know where you dwell. Now, we've covered this in the previous two churches, but again, I think it's worth noting, Jesus Christ knows exactly where we are, and he knows the pressures, he knows the trials, he knows the hardships with which we all face. I think, if anything that I glean out of the seven churches of Revelation, the thing that is paramount to me above all truths is that Jesus knows where I am and what's going on in my life. We have his full attention. Friends, the Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He knows exactly what you're facing. He knows every trial. He knows every hardship. He knows every frustration. He knows every sorrow. He knows every uncertainty, every question, and every doubt, and every fear. Jesus Christ knows all about you and what you face. And that's the greatest thing to me that we learn in the seven churches of Revelation. So he's going to tell these precious believers, I know where you dwell. And watch what he's going to say. This is fascinating to me. He says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now what does Jesus mean by this? I think it has two meanings. I think it certainly means the level of spiritual darkness that was in this city. For remember, this is the center in Asia Minor, in this great Roman province. This is the center for idol worship. It's the center for heathenism. It's the center for paganism. So yes, I think it means the spiritual darkness. But let me tell you quite literally what I believe it means. In the city of Pergamum, there was this massive mountain and a massive altar built to the God of Zeus. Now, this was no ordinary altar. This was quite something to behold, historians tell us. They say this altar jetted out from a mountain, the highest mountain in Pergamum. They say that this altar built to Zeus was 100 feet wide and 40 feet tall. And history tells us it was in the shape of a throne. How interesting is that? Could this be what Jesus meant by Satan's throne? I believe it is. And let me tell you another interesting piece of history. Guess who excavated the city of Pergamum in the early 1900s? The German government. In the early 1900s, Germany went to to send archaeologists to the city of Pergamum, and there they found the altar of Zeus. 
What I believe Satan, that Jesus refers to as Satan's throne. They bring what they found back to Germany and they reconstruct it. And from the years of 1910 to 1930, they spend 20 years rebuilding this. And it now sits in what's called the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And it opened in 1930. And do you realize who became the Chancellor of Germany in 1933? No other than Adolf Hitler. How interesting it is that when he came to power, Satan's throne was in the city of Berlin. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but I think that's quite fascinating. So Jesus tells these Christians, I know where you dwell, Satan's throne. And listen to what he's going to say to them. What what precious words. He's going to say, I know that you have held fast. You have not denied my name. And you have held fast to my faith. You've not denied my name. You've not denied my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, when he was killed among you. Now, let me tell you another interesting fact to me about this church. Do you know that there is no historical record of a man named Antipas? His name means against all. He stood firmly for Jesus Christ. He stood against the spiritual wickedness. He stood against the throne of Satan. He stood against the spiritual warfare of his day. But yet there is no historical record of any man ever named Antipas of this time period that we know. The only record we have is what the Lord Jesus Christ said of him in this verse. Friends, do you know what this says to me? I could care less if history ever knows my name. I want the Lord Jesus to know my name. Amen. There are so many men and women through the pages of history who we all know them and we all know the life they lived. But when they stood before Jesus, he said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. But I believe he said to this unknown man, This man who history never cared to record. This this man who was a giant in the eyes of the church, but history never took note of him. I believe Jesus said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What will Jesus say to you? Oh, my friends, don't live for the popularity of this world. Quit worrying about how many Facebook friends you have. Stop worrying about how many Twitter followers you get. Stop worrying about your Instagram. Stop worrying about how many people know you or know what you do or think well of you. What does Jesus think this morning? Amen? And that's what Antipas teaches me. I don't care if people know me. They don't need to know me. What they need to know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that matters in my life is one day I will stand before Jesus and will he know me. Henry Martin said it so well. It should be the business of every day to be prepared for your final day. Are you prepared to stand before Jesus? Are you ready to stand and give an account before? Will he know you or will he say depart from me? And so Jesus says these wonderful things to the church. He says, I know where you dwell. I see how hard it is. I know it's where Satan's throne is. 
I know that you've been faithful to my name and faithful to the faith. You've not denied the faith. And even in the days of Antipas, when it was the hardest, when, when Christians were killed for my name's sake, you held fast. I see that. But now Jesus is going to say, and again, he says after that, he says, where Satan dwells. Notice that. Twice he mentions this. Now, friends, understand this. Some Christians don't realize this. You have to understand Satan is not omnipresent. That is an attribute only to the Lord. There is no, uh, there is no demon. There's no angel. Uh, there uh, only only God is omnipresent. Only God is everywhere at once. Only God sees everything at one time. Only God. Only God. Satan isn't everywhere. He can't be. He doesn't have that kind of ability. See, that's why, again, go back and listen to the series, The Armor of God. Oh, I can't get into all of that, but just, <laughs> just for a second. Ephesians 6, see, Paul teaches the hierarchy of Satan's kingdom, principalities and rulers and authorities and spiritual wickedness and high places and cosmic powers. When Paul writes all of that in Ephesians 6, in the original Greek, the way in which he's writing is it is the ranks of a military. It is what Paul is showing us is that Satan's kingdom is highly organized and it's ranked. And why does Satan's kingdom have to be highly organized? Why is there a hierarchy to Satan's kingdom? Why are there ranks to his kingdom? Because, friends, they're not omnipresent. Amen. And Satan is not everywhere. He doesn't have that ability. Glory to God. He's on a short leash. And that leash is called God's sovereignty. So, imagine being a Christian in this city. See, Satan's not in Ephesus. He's not in Smyrna. He's not in Thyatira. He's not in Philadelphia. He's not in Sardis. He's not in Laodicea. Where is he? He's in Pergamum. Imagine being a Christian and living in the city where Satan actually dwells. Friends, they were in a very, very difficult place. But yet Christ says, I know where you dwell. I know where you are. And you've held fast to me. Now, he gives them that kind of precious words. But, but now watch. But now watch. You know, it's interesting to me. <clears throat> Jesus is not afraid of hard conversations. I think sometimes our lives would be much better if we had hard conversations with the people we love. Whether that's family. Whether that's children. Whether that's employers or employees, whether that's team members at work, even if that's here in our wonderful church. Sometimes you have to have hard conversations. And you know what? Jesus wasn't afraid to say hard things to the people he loved. Isn't that fascinating to you? And watch what he says. Verse number 14. He says, but I have this against you. Nevertheless, I have some things against you. Now watch what he's going to say. Are you, are you in the mood to learn this morning? Because we're going to learn a lot. You ready? Because we're going to deep dive this thing, all right? He says, you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Now what's he mean by this? 
You have some who hold to the doctrine or to the way or to the error or to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, teaching them to practice idolatry and to practice sexual immorality. Now, what's he saying, church? you got to go all the way back to the Old Testament to understand this. And I'm just going to briefly explain this, but I'm going to tie, Lord willing, all of this into history and show you what I believe the Holy Spirit says to the churches in this. What was the doctrine of Balaam? What was the teaching of Balaam? Well, this is practically, this is what you need to know. The teaching of Balaam is to take God and godly things for personal gain. That's the way of Balaam. When you take the precious things of God and make personal gain out of it. So let me tell you briefly the story of Balaam. Balaam was this crazy, bizarre, weird prophet of the Old Testament. This man was so bizarre. Balaam was a prophet for hire. Anyone could hire him, good or bad, for God or against God. Anyone could hire him. He was for hire. And again, it's personal gain, taking the things of God for personal gain. And one day, the enemy of Israel, the Moabites, the king of Moab, Balak, he hired Balaam to speak a curse against the children of Israel. See, what Balaam understood is the power of words. What we don't understand in our current church age is the power of our words. How did God create the world? He spoke it into existence. Who are we created in the image of? God Almighty. And that's why the Bible teaches in Proverbs that the power of life and death are in the what? In the tongue. The words that you say are, they have enormous weight and enormous ramifications. That's why when it says the power of life and death are in the tongue, it says you'll eat of the fruit of it. Whether that's good or bad, what you say is what you'll end up eating. An old proverb says, uh, I can't remember, maybe a Spanish proverb. It's really good. It says, be careful the things you say. Make sure, no, no, I'm sorry, it goes like this. Make sure your words are soft and sweet for you may have to eat them. That's good advice. And scripture says, you will eat of the fruit of your words. So Balaam understood this. And so Balaam would bless or he would curse, depending on who hired him. Well, the king of Moab, Balak, hired him to curse the people of Israel. God, in his sovereignty, God, in his power, would not allow it. When Balaam went to curse the people of Israel, God so overcome the man's tongue and intellect, you know what came out? Blessings! So the king of Moab gets mad. And he ups the ante and he pays him more. And Balaam goes to curse the people of God. And again, blessing comes out, not cursing. And so here we learn the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam goes to the king of Moab, Balak. And this is what he tells him. King, I can't curse him. But if you can't curse him, here's what you do. You corrupt him. And this prophet who is for hire, he tells the king of Moab, take your most beautiful women and bring them before the sons of Israel and they'll take the bait. 
And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And Balaam told Balak, if you'll do this, God himself will curse them if they go into idolatry. And sure enough, they married the women of Moab and went into idolatry and lost the blessings of God. Friends, the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, the teachings of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, that's what the New Testament, multiple references refer to all of this. What it is, is where Satan cannot curse the church, he'll corrupt her. And that's the teaching of Balaam. And see, look what Jesus said to the church. You've held fast to my name. You've not denied my faith. You've had martyrs among the church. You are steadfast. But what happened? Satan, even at Satan's throne, even in the place where Satan dwelled, Satan could not curse the church. So what did he do? He corrupted her. I think you'll find it as interesting as I do. The word Pergamum is where we get our English words bigamy and polygamy. What is bigamy? It's when you're married to another person and then you marry another person at the same time. What is polygamy? To have multiple wives. Pergamum is where we get our English words bigamy and polygamy. What the church of Pergamum represents is the church marrying the world. It's the way of Balaam. It's the error of Balaam. Now, note the next verse. Not only is there the way of Balaam putting a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, teaching them idol, idolatry and practicing sexual immorality. Now watch this. Oh, fascinating. Watch this. He says, and some of you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now what was that? Just follow me for a second, and then I'm going to try to connect all these dots. Scholars believe that the Nicolaitans come from one of the seven deacons of the early church mentioned in Acts. One of the seven, you know, the most predominant was Stephen, who was stoned and martyred. But one of the seven deacons was named Nicholas. And scholars believe that Nicholas went way off in the weeds and went off into error and false doctrine and created this cult called the Nicolaitans. And you remember Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You know what the name the Nicolaitans mean? Now, don't miss this. Follow me closely. The name Nicolaitans literally means to divide the laity, to conquer the laity. Now, where does this fit in history? I am soundly convinced. You can think what you want. You're free to interpret this how you feel, but... I don't think anyone can deny that we live in the era of the Laodicean church. I think very few would deny that. I think when you match up history, you see the church of Ephesus in the early church. You see the church of Smyrna under the Roman persecution from about 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. But let me give you just a little bit of knowledge here. In 312 A.D., have you ever heard of the Roman emperor named Constantine? Constantine was about to fight a battle. Now remember, it's illegal in the Roman 
empire to be a Christian, fiercely persecuted. He told the church of Smyrna, you'll endure 10 days of persecution. 10 waves came upon the church. But under the emperor Constantine, he had a dream where they were about to go to battle. And he had this dream of a cross. And he somehow convinced himself that if he would put a cross on every shield, that God would be pleased with that. And if he became a Christian that God would supernaturally win the battle. Well, sure enough, they put a cross on every shield, and sure enough, they won the battle. And Constantine completely flipped the Roman Empire. He went from where it was illegal to be a Christian to it was illegal not to be a Christian. Now, remember what Pergamum means. Polygamy, bigamy. Remember what Christ is saying to his church. You've gone after the way of Balaam, personal gain. Remember what he said, the Nicolaitans, the conquering of the laity, creating a hierarchy to where you have bishops and cardinals and priests and then the congregation. Conquering the laity, dividing the laity. And under Constantine came the Roman Catholic Church. Now I realize that Catholicism today is not what Catholicism was back then. And I realize that there are many probably listening who are Catholic. And I want to be careful in what I say here because there are, I believe, good and born-again Catholics. However, I have serious, serious Uh, issues with the doctrine of the Catholic Church. And if any of you grew up Catholic, if any of you now consider yourself Catholic, and you would like to have a conversation with me on what I believe are the fallacies of the Roman Catholic Church, I would love to speak with you. I'd love to talk to you one-on-one and share from my heart what I see in Scripture. But understand this time period. This time period went from 312 A.D., to 606 A.D. And I believe, and, and really really even extends into the 1500s under Martin Luther. And when you begin to read about the men like William Tyndale and Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and John Huss and John Knox and Erlewick Zwingli and John Calvin and oh, so many mighty, mighty men. See, what you have to understand, what you cannot, and I think even, even, even good Catholics recognize this, what, what you have to understand about this time period is that the Word of God was completely locked up. You, you, it was illegal for you to own a Bible if you were not a priest. And the only Bibles that were uh, available were written in Latin. And only priests could learn Latin. And so do you see what Jesus meant by the Nicolaitans, the conquering, the dividing of priest and church member? Friends, that's not biblical. It is not biblical at all that you would have to go to a man to confess your sins. It is not biblical that you would have to go to a mediator, that you would have to go to a a priest or a bishop or a preacher or any other flesh To commune with God. It's not biblical. The Bible teaches that you 
through the blood of Christ, have access to the throne of God, that you may go boldly before his throne and obtain grace and help in your time of need. Friends, many of this error, many of this teaching comes out of this church period, out of what Jesus calls the church of Pergamum, bigamy, polygamy. It is the church marrying the world. A church historian aptly said, and I think this was quite fascinating, he said of Constantine, in that day, in 312 A.D., Constantine offered his gold to the church, and the church eagerly swallowed the bait. Whew. And that's what we see in, this, in these terms, the error of Balaam, the way of the Nicolaitans. Now watch how he finishes. Now, this, this is precious scripture to me because we realize that not everyone in the church is going to repent. Not everyone in the church is going to follow Christ. So here's what he says in verse 17. Well, I'm sorry, I missed a verse. He, he then is going to say in 16, he's going to say, Repent therefore, or I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword out of my mouth. What a warning. Again, Jesus is not afraid to say hard things to his people. And now look how he ends, verse 17. He says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. (laughs) I love that because whether anybody else follows Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. Whether this whole church age turns their back on the Lord, I'm not going to. I'm going to follow Jesus all the way. It doesn't matter how you live, I'm going to keep myself pure. It doesn't matter how you go. Listen, I'm going to keep myself for Christ because that great marriage supper of the Lamb is soon to come. Amen? And only those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, only those who have no spots and no wrinkles due to the blood of Jesus Christ, only they are going to be the ones who conquer. So I don't know where your spiritual life is. You may be completely out of church a year from today, but let me tell you, I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to join you. I'm going to stay close to Jesus. I'm going to be one of the ones who overcome in Jesus' name. So he says, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I don't have time to go into all of that depth because you got to go way back to the Old Testament. The children of Israel, when they had nothing, they had the sweet provision of God. Manna means angel's bread. (laughs) Scripture says it has a sweet taste to it. I've often thought, I wonder if in heaven the Lord will let me taste a honey teddy gram, and then manna. I don't know. I just picture, I picture, like for people like us, I just picture there'll be little manna stations where we can go taste it. But see, there's so much Old Testament truth steeped into this. You know, in the Ark of the Covenant, they had a golden bowl with manna hidden. This is where all this stems from. And I think what Jesus is saying to his church, you'll always have provision. Always, I'm going to take care of you. But this is where I end. And and watch this. I think this is fascinating. Jesus says to the one who conquers, he'll be given hidden manna, but he'll also be given a white stone with a new name written on it, 
a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does Jesus mean by this? This is my view. This is my interpretation. There are other views, but this is the one that I think is most accurate. In the ancient days that the Bible was written, do you know how that they would be judged, especially in the Greek culture? Do you know how, uh, so take like, for example, Mars Hill in that area, the Acropolis. You know how they were judged? You would stand trial before several judges and they would hear your case. And each judge had two stones. And after they had heard your case, they would walk by and they had an urn and they would put their stone in the urn. And each judge had a black stone and each judge had a white stone. And black meant that you were condemned. White meant you were acquitted. And then they would count the stones and if you had more white than you did black, then you were acquitted of all charges. (laughs) And you know what I believe Jesus is saying to his church? Is that the majority of the church may go the way of Balaam. The majority of the church may go into error. The majority of the church may not stay faithful to Christ. But if you stay faithful, if you overcome, you'll be given a precious white stone of acquittal. Amen? That's what I think Jesus is saying. And I think one day when you and I stand before Jesus, I think along with those golden crowns, along with those five crowns of scriptures and those evergreen crowns, I think along with that, I think the Lord Jesus Christ will give us a white stone saying you overcame the wicked one. You overcame sin. You overcame the world. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I want that white stone for all of eternity. I want that new name written on it that is personal. It's written only to me because I kept the faith and I never denied the Lord Jesus Christ with my lifestyle. So I think the question today, what the Spirit's saying to the church today, I think what the Holy Spirit's asking us today is are you pure? Are you a pure Christian? Is your heart pure? Is your life pure? Have your robes been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Or are you living in bigamy? Are you living in polygamy? To where you're married to the world. And there's as much worldliness in you as there is Christianity in you. Friends, it will not hold on judgment day. Christ will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Will you be given a white stone of acquittal? Will the Lord Jesus receive you? Will you make it the business today to get prepared for your final day and the day that you'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know your life. I don't live with you. I don't know your heart. I don't know your spiritual condition. But Jesus does because he walks among his church. And Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows those of you who are fake and he knows the ones of you who are genuine. He knows the ones who are playing church and playing religion and the ones who hold fast to his name. Jesus knows. Today, if the Spirit of God is convicting you, then guess what? You're hearing. (laughs) You're hearing what the Spirit would say to his churches. Why don't you respond? Why don't you submit? Why don't you repent? And why don't you say, Jesus, no longer am I going to be married to the world. I'm going to walk away from worldly things. 
and I'm going to follow you with my whole heart. Let's all stand today, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Will you respond to the Holy Spirit today? Maybe there are things in your life that ought not be there, and you know they shouldn't be there. Why don't you come today, lay it at the altar, and don't take it home with you. Perhaps there are loved ones in your life who you know, you know they're not following Jesus right now. They may seem religious, they may be good people, but they're apart from Jesus Christ. Why don't you come pray for them? Why don't you come lay them at the altar? Some of you have children who you need to lay at the altar. Some of you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You need to lay them on the altar. Some of you need to repent yourself or you need to pray repentance for those who you most love. Why don't you come and do business with God right now? Why don't you come and, and lay it at the altar? Those of you who are watching online, those of you who are listening, you're listening online. And the Spirit of God's convicting you right where you are, no matter where you are. Why don't you bow your head and say, Jesus, receive me. Forgive me. Come and cleanse my life. No longer am I going to accept worldliness. No longer am I going to walk according to the course of this world. No longer am I going to follow the God of this world, Satan. But I'm going to be pure for Jesus Christ. My friend, Satan cannot curse you, but he can corrupt you. Why don't you pray today that there'll be no corruption in your life, no mixing of the world, no mixing of the world, no mixing. Friends, the world will sink its hooks into your children faster than you can turn around. The world will hook them. Don't allow worldliness into your home. Don't allow it. Don't allow it. Some of you need to repent for the worldliness that you've allowed. Some of you need to set your children down and say, Children, no longer are we going to allow this in our home. It's worldly. And teach your children. Teach them to repent. Teach them what God loves. Teach them what God hates. You say, oh, Chad, now God doesn't hate things. Read your Bible. He hates the workers of iniquity. He hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Teach your children what God loves, what God cherishes. Teach them what He hates. So that one day on that great judgment day, God will not say to your precious children, depart from me. Oh, God, help us to teach our children. Help us, Lord God. In this day that worldliness creeps into the church, in this day that worldliness pipes into our homes, in this day that is so worldly, Lord God, protect us. Keep us. Keep us, Lord God. Preserve us. Preserve our faith. Help us to endure. know Satan is working overtime we know that he knows these are the last days make us wise Lord God cause us to be serious in our faith cause us to walk with God at a different level with which we've ever walked 
calls us to pray deeper and more increasingly than we've ever prayed. Bring a seriousness to our faith that we've never had.